All right, hello, Harvest Community Church. Well, thank you. If you're a first-time guest, my name is Mike. I was gone for a couple of weeks. It wasn't hot enough here in Pennsylvania, so my wife and I spent two weeks in North Carolina, Georgia, and uh, South Carolina. I think that got it out of my system. One quick note for everybody at all four campuses. Our kids' ministries are starting to fire up again. We're running into only one problem, enough workers. So um, some people are, are not yet in the habit of coming back to church live. Uh, if that's you and you know you're going to anyway and you help with the kids, well, now's a good time. Uh, come on back. Um, we don't want anyone to come back who's not comfortable, of course. You, we trust you to manage yourself. Um, but we do take uh, ministry to kids as a very high priority, and I know that means it takes a lot of people, but all four campuses are starting back up, so um, please come and help. You might say, well, what if we don't get enough helpers? This is not a threat or anything like that. It's just a reality. We'll only be able to handle who we have teachers for. So uh, we, always, we normally always, not always, start from the bottom, so we start with the nursery and go up. So we like to staff all grades. So this week, this is the time to volunteer. Uh, second thing is uh, I'm not going to preach on Romans 8 today. I'm going to pick up my two verses next time I preach uh, because I want to take a break. Um, I don't like taking this break, but I'm going to anyway. Racial issues are dominating our culture. Um, this is a very hot subject. I do not like commenting on hot subjects when they're so hot. I'd rather they cool down a bit uh, because the more you say, uh, there's no way to not be controversial. There's people still sorting things out in their minds, and I'd rather say less. Um, but I'm going to say something today. Uh, I've got a lot to say, but nowhere near everything I want to say or probably could say or maybe even should say. So um, if, if you say, well, you should have talked about this, you should have talked about that, I'm going to say you're probably right. Um, why am I interrupting Romans at all? Because I think a worldly philosophy, and I'm going to read a lot. Normally, I don't read much from my notes, but if I don't read much from my notes, if I do this like I normally do, it'll take me three hours. I, I seriously am going to read much. I write a manuscript, which means a full thing every time, but I normally don't read much of it. I'm going to be reading today. Hope that doesn't distract. Worldly philosophies and errant assumptions are invading the church. And when it starts to get into the church, and I start to hear it and see it on a national level, it really gets my attention. And I can't cover everything, but I, and I'm not going to cover your politics, whatever that is. Um, but I will proceed as follows. First, biographical. I, I don't want to be self-indulgent. This is about the Word of God, not me. But um, I think you need to know what sort of mindset I go into this with, uh, because it's very close to my heart. Second, I want to talk a little bit about the statements of church leaders that are getting me uh, riled up. And third, practical action steps. Okay, you ready? First, my background. I am certain, and this may sound crazy, that I've never been racist and never had racist thoughts. Um, I, I, my parents were very good examples to me. Uh, they, they never spoke pejoratively against other peoples, nor behaved in such a way that would make me uh, think they thought that way. My mother, being of uh, Mexican Italian descent, but from, really from, even the Italians went to Mexico, when she was very conscious of the fact that some people are treated differently, and she would never allow any of that. And also, I was lucky enough to grow up in the late 60s, early 70s when you start school, and that meant we were all given, I didn't know the history of America, and so we started with MLK uh, after he died, especially in the schools, they taught us right out. He was right. Um, judge a man by the content of his character, not the color of his skin, and I believed that. Um, but I didn't really understand what I was dealing with. <laughs> In the eighth grade, I started listening to Richard Pryor records, or maybe seventh. Uh, by the way, my parents should have kept a closer eye on me. They had no idea what I was listening to. Uh, but, but in my naivete, I thought, you can talk and use racial slurs around black people, and it's funny. And I had a, a friend in the ninth grade, and I learned a very hard lesson in that he was a true friend. I really liked him. Um, but I would tease. Can you believe it? I tease me, joke around with people. And often I would use, I'd refer to his, the color of his skin in ways that, uh, well, let's say, I, it, I think it ended our friendship. I didn't figure that out until about a year after he left, but... It was a very hard lesson for me. It really hurt my feelings. I had a lot of regret. wished I had known better and um, had determined one thing, never say the N-word to uh, 
in, in any kind of derogatory sense. I guess you could use it in a quotation or whatever. Um, and, and it showed me that there's, there's more to this than I thought. There's more than this than I thought. There's a lot of hurt that is, uh, that is in, non, in black people, really. Um, but then fast forward to becoming a Christian at age 19. I just skipped a lot. Um, but I determined, when I was a new Christian, I determined to explore the divide between black and white. Uh, why? I don't know. It was always on my heart. Um, uh, from the beginning. From the beginning. I, 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 maybe because I, I got a record at the Penn State Library when I was a new Christian, and I had Martin Luther King's sermons on it, and I listened to them all. And, and that line that is always used to prove that we're all racist, which I don't think is correct uh, proof, but that, that the most segregated hour in the country is 11 o'clock on Sundays. And that is true, generally, but I don't know if that proves we're all racist. But anyway, I thought, I, I, I want to figure this out. So, uh, determined to, realizing as an idealistic, brand new Christian, wasn't raised super religiously, and, and uh, I, I knew that the blacks and whites needed to get together, because that's what the Christians are supposed to do. And uh, I never had a problem. I never looked down on blacks or any other color people. I was always, and, and, and I'm not taking any credit for that. I wasn't an enlightened kid. I just, it was just the way I was. And, and um, I've always liked other cultures. I, I've never had a problem with other cultures. I love, I love them. I like to learn other musics, eat other foods, especially the food. The one thing you miss by leaving New Jersey is the whole world immigrates to New Jersey, not New York City, as you might think, and their food is there. <laughs> Can you imagine being within in a five-mile radius, being able to hit pick your ethnic food. And I mean, you could have Cuban, you could have Filipino, you could have um, Puerto Rican, but you could also have first-generation uh, Russian, Romanian, German, Lithuanian. It's all right there. And uh, so if you have any racism in you, you should get rid of it just for the eats. Um, just kidding there. So what I began to do is I began to visit black churches. Um, I didn't have a church heritage because I left mine, the Catholic church. I left it, so we're starting from scratch. I was in charismatic churches. I was in fundamentalist churches. I was in all kinds of churches. So I started to visit black churches whenever I could. I was an adult. I was out of the house. I could go where I wanted. And one of the things that struck me that I loved was the emotiveness of it. <laughs> um, only, only time you can get a white people to, to be emotional is in charismatic churches. I don't know why that is. Um, <laughs> I'm, I'm not kidding. I'm, I have no idea why that is. Uh, all these, uh, all the, most white people, they come, they stand, they sit, and the preacher kind of whispers a sermon over the PA system. Um, charismatic white dudes and uh, black people understand that, that this is an emotional thing, that I, and I like the music better. Um, uh, as a side note, I think charismatics have, has always been better on race because uh, I don't know why. If you've ever been involved in charismatic churches, they just seem to break down the walls faster. I had a good friend in college named Marlon who was black, and he challenged me. He said, listen, I know you're visiting black churches, and I know we're friends, he said, but would you ever consider joining a black church? Well, I took that to heart, and so when I left college, I said, I, I would do that. I'm not going to let color be one of my factors. And as we moved around the country, my wife can tell you, I would look, I, I, I never let that be a factor. And when we chose churches, I, I began reading uh, um, on, on racial reconciliation, which was the buzzword back then in the 80s. And uh, I found a guy named John Perkins who, I, who changed the way I looked at everything because he gave me a practical step. And really, the word that I'd, I'd want to leave you with is intentionality. Intentionality. Uh, he, he, was, he was teaching that one of the things any Christian can do is not let the status quo go by. Um, intentionally cross cultural bounds, intentionally become friends with people who are not like you. And, and if, if you, and I don't care where you are, I, I grew up in the South and there are blacks and whites, and most of the time if you go to a cafeteria uh, for any school, the blacks sit together, whites sit together. Not because they hate each other, they're very comfortable with each other, right? Um, every once in a while there'll be a little mixing, but not on the whole. So after this, now I was in college, every chance I got, whenever I realized, hey, people are having off together, I'd go with the other group. And I'd go, and I did the same when, in seminary. You know, I, I got to meet uh, every international. <laughs> and, and, and a lot of people just don't meet internationals at, at seminary. Why? They're all over the place, but internationals stick to themselves and, and, and other people stick to themselves. So I realized intentionality was the thing. To, to not just say, hey, I have a friend of another color who really is a coworker or a student but someone who actually been to their house, they've been to my house, we've been friends, we know each other's kids after I started having kids. I realized that was necessary 
for me, in my mind, I believe for an obedient Christian life. I also became very concerned with the plight of the urban poor. And you got to be careful. I think predominantly white, and I'm not stereotyping predominantly white people because I know most of my audience here is white, um, but they can start to think, uh, they can associate because so many uh, difficult urban centers are all black people that all black people live in difficult earning urban settings. <laughs> and that's not true. <laughs> um, uh, but a lot do, and, and then that began to become important to me, too, and I wanted solutions, and even starting in college, I began to participate in ministries in Chicago, where I literally go there, or Chester, PA, uh, Los Angeles, and then when I got into to being a, a pastor, a lot in Newark, New Jersey, and, and where I would be there, or I would pay other people to be there, right? Send missionaries there. And uh, as a pastor, I would send groups to people who do that. I loved getting a bunch of white people right into the middle of an inner city where they were afraid. They normally lock their doors so they can just get com- start to get comfortable around other people. Why? Because I want to bridge that gap. When I was in California, before I was a pastor, I joined the M2 prison ministry, which matched purposely match cross-cultural you with troubled youth. <laughs> My troubled youth was violent troubled youth. He was a crip. He was, uh, um, he was a bad gang member, and, um, <laughs> who I think I just found again. And if so, we were exchanging letters already. Um, and and, and, and c- why? Because I, I cared about the prison situation began to be on my heart as a Christian. When I went to South Carolina, I spent a couple of years visiting the prisons. And, and there's different population colors, obviously, in prisons, but... I made friends of all colors, and that is a racial, cross-cultural ministry. Fast forward to age 30, I guess. Let me zero in on my life as a pastor. After visiting, when I was in seminary, we go to Columbia, South Carolina. I never lived there before, and there are a lot of black people and white people. And in the South, I think you'll find that in, in public, black people and white people get along better and more cordially than they do in the North. Just a fact. If you, if you don't believe it, go down there and see it. Um, black people and white people look at each other much more suspiciously in Philadelphia, for example, than they do in Columbia, South Carolina. Um, but that doesn't necessarily mean they're crossing into each other's homes um, or into each other's churches. So I visited a great big white church. Uh, churches aren't white or black, but for ease of communication, you know what I mean. I think the biggest white church at the time was First Baptist Columbia, and it was huge, and everyone wore a tie and, and uh, sang bad music, and... Um, and then the biggest black was Brookland, and I went to Brookland too. I was trying out churches to find one. And it, phew, just hundreds and hundreds of people, and uh, music was better. Um, felt very much similar, though. And then um, uh, actually ended up in a place called Columbia Christian Fellowship. My pastor was Richard Fleming. His skin color was dark, in case you're wondering. And um, Columbia, they were trying to purposely be interracial. And there was about 150 people, I'd say. 60% uh, maybe were black, and then the other 40 were other, and I was part of the other. Uh, And I did that on purpose. Uh, The reason I chose that one is because I liked Richard Fleming's teaching, just like I would if he was white. I didn't pick it because he's black, but I didn't rule him out because he's black. And I liked his teaching. I went to that church. I would later be able to preach there, and I was well-received because, believe it or not, even among the blacks, they find me a motive, and I like that. I don't have the... The, the rhythm down to, to hoop or to preach in a way that gets amens in rhythm, and you may not know what I mean, but it's not as easy as you think to stay in rhythm with the amens. I'd be like, preach it away. They'd be like, amen. I'd be like, oh, it threw me off. And, um, but they were patient with me, and I was actually ordained. So that's the church that sent me out, the church that the elders laid hands on me and said, he is uh, called to vocational ministry. And I say, I remain friends with that pastor to this day. My first pastorate was First Baptist Church Union, New Jersey, um, about 100, 110 people, 99% white. I say 99% because let's say there was 100, one Haitian woman was there, so they were 99% white, literally. <laughs> Normally people just say that, it was 99%, unless her daughter came, um, in which case it was 98% or 101, uh, too much math. Uh, but they were surrounded in a very multicultural place, their, their area, World War II boom kind of suburb of New York City. Don't think suburb like here. I mean, think really tight together uh, houses. Um, uh, starting to color up. They're all different color people around. But they still were white because why? Because that's what they were. By the time I left, seven and a half years ago, I'd love to tell you the stories, but it was no longer that way. By the time I left, we had grown to about 150 regulars. Um, which is about, probably about 200 people who call that place their home, and about 60% of them were white. And most all the growth was other colors. And I didn't do that by being multicultural or liberal or anything like that. Um, I didn't wear 
uh, uh, scarves from other country or learn other languages. I did it by preaching the word and telling the people straight out. If you come in this church, it doesn't matter what color you are. If you're Mexican, well, there weren't many Mexicans. There's not many then. There's a lot of Puerto Ricans. If you're Puerto Rican, be Puerto Rican. Talk about beans and rice. You dance well, and you stereotype you're going to get in trouble. This is why I get in trouble. You know, if you're black, be as black as you want to be. If you're Chinese, be as Chinese as you want to be. Not many Chinese there. But when, by the time I left, we had at least, I was thinking through for this sermon, at least two Haitian families. Remember, this is a church of 150. So everyone knows everybody. At least two African-American families. I don't know, a handful of Puerto Rican families, a couple of Ecuadorians, one Indian family. Um, Indians are hard to break into. They all lived in a town down, but one, you know, the dot, you know, Indian. Uh, one Russian, one Russian. I mean, off the boat, Russian, spoke with an accent. Uh, a couple of Romanian families, a guy from Trinidad, who's now one of our missionaries, by the way. Um, and uh, I put a Cuban here. I don't know if I had a Cuban, um, but, but the, the point is, most of the growth was cross-cultural, and that meant a lot to me. Um, we even had a Filipino church meet in the afternoon, and I was good friends with his pastor. That's why he met there. I made friends with him because he, him, Ed Tablazon was his name, a guy named Zach Guyton, who I'd met in seminary, who was black, and I didn't meet him. Because he's black, I didn't let his blackness stop me from meeting him, and we became friends. And uh, he was in Orange, New Jersey, and the three of us would meet all the time, and Ed Tablesen needed a place to set how about here, and so for rent-free, pretty much, we let them use the building, and um, that was good. I had a pastor in Roselle of a very large uh, black church called Second Baptist Roselle. Jim was his name, and uh, we did a pulpit exchange. We were friends. We did other things together. So I got to preach there, again, well-received. I enjoyed that. By the time I left, and here's a good measure, we had a, a black, an African-American elder in our very small new elder team. We moved from deacons to elders while I was there. We had a very small elder team, and one of them was my buddy, who was also a good godly man, and, 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 and he was a leader. So he wasn't a leader because he was black. He wasn't affirmative action. He was a good Christian man, met all the qualifications, and so we made him a leader. There was no, no and, and after I left, since I've left, they've had a black pastor. Now they have a Cuban pastor and um, an Ecuadorian on the elder board, and they had a, a Trinidadian on the elder board. Um, now, if you walked in this church, you'd say, culturally, it still feels kind of white. I know. How did you pull that off? Preaching the gospel and intentionally, not just letting people come in, but intentionally making those relationships when someone who looked different came in intentionally um, crossing those boundaries and trying to teach other people to do the same. And then I came to Harvest. Uh, the one reason I, I would not have come here, the, the only strike against Harvest in my mind, I thought, this is the place I need to be. I can see where I could do good. I think this is God calling me. The one thing that kept me from wanting to be here, no kidding, was this, this county is too monochrome for me. Um, homogeneous, get what I'm saying? Uh, my kids, literally, kids, literally, one of them said, and they all agreed, in the car, driving around, where are the black people? Um, they could have said, where are the Asian people? Fortunately, we have Jack, so there's one. We, um, you can laugh. It's okay. White people get really nervous when you talk about other colors, but I do it anyway. You're, you're going to be okay. Um, so, but I thought, no, I still think God is sending me here. I'm not going to let skin color change where I go. So they're all white. I'll go to an all-white place, and that's okay with me. And here's what I found. I have not let skin color change me here either. I brought in Double Edge, my buddies Sean and Troy Isaac, who were members of First Baptist Church, and they sang. I don't know if any of you in here can remember Double Edge, if you were here that long ago. Tiff, Jeff, do you remember them? The two black brothers? They were literally brothers. I'm not using that, right? And they sang right away. And you know how Harvest received them? All white Harvest? Mostly all white. We actually had a black person on our worship team before I got here. So Harvest is never... I've never... I want to say this before I start. I've never seen racism in Harvest. I've heard one person say something that was racist, and, and um, I tried to correct that, and I'm not saying it's not in any hearts, but all I see is people loving people coming into Harvest. If I see anything else, I will call it out, because it's wrong. It's evil. 
Um, but I haven't seen it. And from that day, I didn't see it. In fact, one of the guys said, why don't we call them as our worship leaders? And I'm like, because you can't afford them. Um, we've had also in our pulpit, Hugo Chang, good friend of mine from seminary, who was pastor at the Chinese church. Tilak Papu, who's an Indian, who's a friend of mine from seminary. Why? Because I made friends with all the international. And now he's one of our uh, people we support in India also. Uh, Recap Gray, a sharp, sharp young man who found me, who seemed to have like it all together. So he's preached here. How many of you remember Recap? several times and, uh, and just done a terrific job. And um, he wasn't up here because he was black, but his blackness didn't let me stop him from giving... I didn't say, well, I don't know if they're ready for a black guy. Never thought of it. Get up there and preach. Let's see how this goes. And uh, it went great. Um, we've had prison ministry, which has brought... I was trying to think of them all. I can't think of them all. Chinese, Indian, Saudi, French, even the French, Nepalese, Brazilian, and other into our homes, into your homes, into your homes. We have... I guarantee you that on the Sundays when we've brought up these, these international students from Pittsburgh into Harvest, if you're new here and you don't know what I'm talking about, well, there's a bunch of international students come to Harvest or come to Pittsburgh all the time, grad students, and there's a ministry that we would partner with and we'd bring about anywhere from 10 to 25 or 30 of them up. And I tell you what, there's no question in my mind it's the biggest invasion from other countries into Armstrong County in the history of the county. I don't think anyone's ever beat that. And then they went into homes that probably never had an international person in those homes. Um, and uh, it was lovely. It was beautiful. You people at Harvest love them. You brought them in. Um, by the way, I want you to know I've had no clock, and that's very dangerous. I don't know if you can fix that now, but I'm going to go as fast as I can anyway. I am talking fast. So you receive them well. We've sent Harvest Youth Group uh, to Newark several times. You parents just signed the waivers. You, you weren't even scared. Maybe you didn't know enough. But I sent them right into the heart of work, Newark more than once to go to work for World Impact. We sent a group of men once to the, um, to the, to the what was it, the Bible? I can't remember the Lighthouse a Mission to do a bunch of work in an inner city mission down there. And um, so, okay. Two points I want to make, and then I'm going to end my personal journey. More I could say, but one, pastoring in two predominantly white churches, I've seen almost zero racism. Okay, this is not the narrative. The narrative is 11 o'clock is the most segregated hour because we all hate each other. I challenge that narrative. It's not been my experience of evangelical Christians, either white, black, or any other color. The willing, now I'm not saying there isn't. <laughs> But you're not going to show me. Well, you're not going to show the pastor. He keeps putting Chinese dudes in front of me. What am I going to say? You know. <laughs> um, but I've seen a willingness to receive in both churches, learn from, lead by, work with, laugh with, play with, and minister to people of all colors and cultures. And I've seen you willing to give up your own people uh, to go to other countries to do the same. My second observation, and this is my opinion. You can take it or leave it. You can argue with it. Or if you're listening online, you can take it or leave it or argue with it. But in my opinion, Sunday morning separation is not caused by color or by racism as much as it is by culture. By culture. People choose church by culture. You choose what's... If you moved, you'd choose a church by culture. There are people who have trouble going to harvest because of the culture. That's what stops them. Everything... They're from the same neighborhood... As most people in this town that I'm preaching in, but they walk in, they go, well, they're not dressed the same as I'm used to in church. The, there's no pews. It doesn't look as nice, the building, and they don't sing the right kind of songs. I don't think I can handle this. And that's how people choose churches. If you were to move to another place, you're going to look for a place like Harvest if you liked Harvest. And those, what, what you'll look for is cultural cues. I'm not saying you won't look at what they believe, but culture leads the way. I was well-received in every black church I ever went to. But there was a very strong culture, and they didn't want to all jump up and leave and go join a white church, and I'm certain they didn't want to change their culture to try to attract white people. And it was the same with white churches. You go to First Baptist Columbia, they were very good to anyone who came in, but they weren't going to change their culture to try to attract black people. And I'm not saying either necessarily should, because my, my point of view, is my own philosophy of ministry, is you don't change cultures, you don't try to be multicultural, you just say everyone come in and be whatever culture you happen to be, and don't be ashamed of it. I mean, some of you white people eat a lot of mayonnaise, fine, <laughs> fine, eat your mayonnaise. <laughs> I 
I'm just, if you can't take a joke, well, first, you're not in harvest. You must be just a visitor. But it's not just black and white. Having been in, uh, a pastor for a long time and been in various places in the country, but definitely saw it in New Jersey and Pittsburgh, the Chinese do church on their own. If you talk to Chinese pastor, they say, we want other people in our church. They're not here. Filipino church, Korean church, Puerto Rican churches. Don't have any Puerto Rican churches around here, but I've seen them. And none of them, I would say, are racist. None of them are, are glomming together with their own kind because they're racist. Why then don't churches purpo- purposely mix, mix up the colors like we did at First Baptist, like I try to do here, at, which we do at Harvest as much as you can in a monochrome community? Because people like the way they do church. And though they're not racist, they're going to go where they're comfortable. Let me put it this way. This was where Marlon... Marlon's challenge to me is like, yeah, you'll visit them. Will you join them? Let me ask you, would you visit them? How would you feel if the place you walked in, everyone looked different than you? Would you say, this is going to be my church home? You don't even think of it. And neither do they. It's just the way people are. It's just like the, 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 the cafeteria. <laughs> uh, the, black, the black kids sit with the black kids. The white kids sit with the white kids. Some of them change over because they're on the same football team maybe. But even then, it doesn't always work. Why? It's not, it's not always racism. Most of the time I'd say it's not. It's just comfort. Perkins was right in the 1980s, and he's right today. And, it, and if I had to call out the church now, and I guess maybe I should have done it more often, the solution is intentionally crossing cultural barriers. If you've been here long enough and paid attention, I've preached that sermon. Uh, one time I preached it, we had uh, someone in, in here who was from the Philippines, and she was like the only Asian in here. And I said something about, if you see an Asian, say hello. If you see a person, and then she came up to me after and said, Pastor Mike, don't say that. All these people came and attacked me after the service. Like, <laughs> but it, it should, be, should be in your school, your place of work, everywhere you go. And if there's none in your town, get in your car, go find some. That's what I did. It's been my lifestyle my whole life. My lifestyle. And Perkins taught me that. We must cross cultural barriers. Now, that's not the whole big picture, but that's something every individual can do. We'll come back to that. To pastors and church leaders, I'd say this. The bottom line is crossing cultural boundaries is essential to a healthy church. And if you never preach on these things, if you never step out yourself, it's almost always ignored by most churches. You know, I've, I think I've only visited one church on a, on a weekend in this area that isn't Harvest, I think. And guess which one it was? Second Baptist, Ford City. You didn't know it was there. Now, I sit around feeling guilty that that's all I ever did, that I didn't go back, make friends with the pastor. That's the only place I can find where there's what we call black church around here. Have you ever been there? Why don't you go? Why don't you go on a Sunday? Well, don't you want me here? Sure, I want you here, but I want you there too. Go visit. Make a friend. Okay, but pastors, if pastors are listening, we, we believe in, in that we exist to increase the health and size of God's church everywhere. You can't have a healthy church that isn't always pushing cult to, to get people to cross out of their comfort zone into other cultural boundaries. You just have to do it. Okay. Now here's the part that's getting trouble. And I hope I can be careful with my words and I hope they say what I mean and I hope you understand. Here we go. Recently, racism has become an issue again, but in a different way than when I was young. <laughs> uh, the focus has shifted from the Word of God to a worldly philosophical structure that has elements of cultural Marxism and critical theory and identity politics. I'm not going to take the time to explain all this. I will talk to you later if you want. I'll say that sentence once again, but I'm not going to repeat everything. The focus has shifted from the Word of God to a worldly philosophical structure that has elements of cultural Marxism, critical theory, and identity politics. Christian leaders in America are beginning to pass on this false system of belief under the cloak of ending division in the church. Instead, they are causing confusion and increasing division. A couple of examples should be all I need. And so I'm going to just use two people, but there are many. One, Beth Moore, who I've always appreciated for in-depth Bible studies for women, 
think she's slipping. She was responding to a person saying that the skin color of Jesus should not matter. Someone said to her, it doesn't matter what color Jesus' skin is, color is. Which, by the way, I agree, it doesn't matter. Beth Moore thinks it does, and she tweeted this, I quote, the exact, that exact body is the one that would take the beating, the spitting, the slashes of the whip, the crown of thorns, the hammer and nails. That very body would hang on the cross until it breathed its last. And then she puts in all caps, that body. And then she says this, that brown Middle Eastern body, it matters. His body matters. So what she is saying is that the color of Jesus' skin matters. And she's implying that whites are racist for thinking Jesus looks like them. Now, in reality, it doesn't matter, Beth, because we're not, I use the term racism only because it's easy to understand. I don't like the term because it's inaccurate. There is no such thing as racism because we'd have no one to hate. We're all one race. We're talking about definitely differences in melanin. I mean, there's no question, anthropologists would tell you the world is, has three shades of melanin and then combinations of those three shades. And they used to say Caucasian, Negro, and I think something like Mongol, Mongolian or something. But now those scientific terms are, offend everybody, so it's white, black, and Asian. And everyone's a combination of that. Even the American Indian, as we call them, or now Native American or indigenous people, whatever you want. It's not really indigenous. They came over from China. And, and that's why, you know... <laughs> But all of us have the same father and mother, Adam and Eve. What color were Adam and Eve? When I go to the white church, um, uh, in the white, now churches shouldn't be white or black, but you know, Adam and Eve are kind of white. Uh, and then when I went to Columbia Christian Fellowship, Adam and Eve were black, which is cool. I don't care. Um, I don't know what they look like, but here's what I do know. Before the fall, they had perfect genetics. And within their DNA was... The, the, the code necessary for all three major divisions. So I don't think they look like any of us, and I bet it was awesome. I bet they had a beautiful tone that we couldn't even imagine. But here's something I want all of us to know. We are 99.9% .9 genetically the same. And I'm not using that as, as hyperbole. That is, I, I, I heard John Perkins say it, so I, I, I Googled it. <laughs> I looked it up. And that's what they say, those people who do the genome project. You are 99.9% .9 the same as anybody. You can get a pygmy from Australia. And they stand about this high, sometimes this high, and you are the same except for the smallest bit. Now, as for Jesus' skin color, let's clear it up because this is stupid. That anyone, It's stupid of Beth Moore, who's losing her mind. Jesus is ethnically a Jew. Okay, you can convert to Judaism, but most Jews don't. They're ethnically Jews, period. All right? Ethnic Jews, you know what they look like. You've seen them. If you don't, go Google Wailing Wall and look at the people standing there with the yarmulkes. Or look at a picture of Bernie Sanders. Or look at a picture of Chuck Schumer. Or look at a picture of Ben Shapiro. Or there's Jews everywhere. They all look the same. They're not brown. I don't care what skin color they are. <laughs> Nor should you. But uh, they didn't change colors in 2,000 years, just like Africans didn't, and Asians didn't, and Norwegians didn't. The skin color of Jesus should not matter, but in today's culture, skin color is currency. I think the demonic world spirit is behind this philosophy, and the way you know it is it comes from college professors. You may think I'm joking. I mean that. It is a spirit that defines people first by their skin color and membership in certain groups. Uh, I could go into detail. I will not. I do not have time. White is both privileged and racist. If you have white skin, you're you definitely privileged, they'd say, and most likely racist. Group identity reigns over your individual identity. You can say, I'm not, but that your protesting only shows that you don't know it. The thinking goes like this. People's different. Listen carefully. I'm reading. I'm not going to be able to repeat it because of time or explain. People's different identities give them different experiences. That's the argument, especially their skin color. 
So if you're a black and a woman, your experience of life is different, obviously, than a white woman or a white man. Their knowledge of the world is colored by not only their experiences then, but by who they are. By who they are. Not just where they grow up and what their parents are like, but the fact that they're a certain color or other things about them. People's actions, they would say, always include power politics based around skin color. There's always a power struggle, a power dynamic going on. Most people of any color do not see this power struggle. They just go through life. But when it is pointed out to them, they see that all of society is really a battle of power between groups. And they become woke. You see it. It's much like when the feminists went to women who were happy to raise a family and told them it's because you need to raise your level of consciousness and see you're really oppressed. Oh, I am oppressed. I hate you, husband. Why? (laughs) Because that lady told me I should. It's very similar. Very similar. And it's demonic. This believes that non-whites, because of their unique non-white experience, have special insight not seen by the majority white population. By the way, this philosophy doesn't go in the reverse. It should. Logically, then whites have special insight that they don't have. But no, we don't go that way. Because whites are the majority culture and assumed to be the dominant player in the the cultural competition. Therefore, they are the oppressor because they're winning the fight because there's more of them. The woke understand this power dynamic. Do you? For white people, to be woke means to acknowledge that you have been blind to racism built into all of society and your need to repent of thinking like you do. In other words, white people's unnoticed racism causes them to use their skin color to gain benefits over others. Let me quote Beth Moore again. Quote, After 400 years, that would be back to the 1600s, of unabashed racism, unabashed means no break in it, and pervasive white supremacy, everyone's a white supremacist, so deeply seeped in the American way of life that most carriers cannot even see it. So I, a white person could be a carrier like of a disease of racism and white supremacy, and they don't even know it, like typhoid Mary. Why not now for this demonic stronghold to be broken? Mainly, dear, because you're working for the demons. Whites need to be awoken so that they can see the truth and repent. Carl Lentz of Hillsong, who has a big voice in the secular world, they listen to him when they want to know what a white evangelical Christian would say, uh, says that the church, quote, may be one of the biggest propagators of racist ideology in our country. By the way, I find that highly offensive. Highly offensive. It's just not true. (laughs) But he says they may be one of the biggest propagators of racist ideology in our country. He can't even say for sure. I guess he's not woke enough yet. Carl, maybe when you get woke enough, you can decide whether we are. Here's my response. Because this is about a way of knowing things. Uh, something uh, Thody Bakken calls, um, what does he call it, ethnic, uh, ethnic Gnosticism. Big words. Don't mean to throw them out there. Another, you're a certain color, you can see certain things. White people can't see more. They can only see less, apparently. My response is knowing the truth is not dependent upon your skin color or even your culture. Knowing something is, but not knowing the truth. Jesus made it clear. Jesus, the Bible says, John 8, I'm quoting from the Bible. Jesus was saying to the Jews who believed in him, if you continue in my word, then you are truly disciples of mine and you will know the truth and the truth will make you free. I don't care what your skin color is. That is how you get to truth. You are not walking around in some kind of dream where you're not woke enough to see what's really going on out there. That is just a construct invented in college classrooms, being shoved in our society, and sadly, and this is why I'm preaching on it, being embraced by church leaders. If it was just a society, who am I to judge? I just want them to get saved. Mankind is easily deceived. Now, I'm not saying culture doesn't matter. Culture matters a great deal. Learning about one another's culture matters a great deal. Empathizing with people who are suffering means a great deal. Empathizing with people of all colors. If you're black, empathizing 
with whites means a great deal. Now, that's an insulting statement in our time, but it's a Christian statement. And whites sympathizing with blacks or anybody. Culture matters, but truth comes from God in His Word. The current push is to buy the idea that the majority of people are racist without knowing it. Inheritors of a system that is racist at its core, I fully reject this. Time doesn't allow all that I want to say on it. So I'm just going to focus on one belief because it's historical and easy to prove. And I think you pull this card out, it's like playing Jenga. The whole, the whole house of cards should fall down. I'm going to take this one statement because I know what's behind it. 400 years of unabashed racism and white supremacy based on the idea uh, that America was based on uh, slavery in the 1600s and, um, and, and, and we've had nothing, even when getting rid of slavery, they say it was just an economic thing and had nothing to do with caring about black people and that she is saying, look, the church has, has just drunk this poison for four centuries. Unabashed racism and white supremacy. White supremacy used to be a word you don't throw around. Those are Nazis and whatnot. Now oh, everybody's a white supremacist. The store is a white supremacist. <laughs> Beth Moore's assessment of white America in general and the white evangelical church in particular is 400 years of unabashed. I'm not picking on her alone, but I am picking on her. I'm picking on so many who are buying this, both black preachers and white preachers. The claim is a lie. It overstates not only the sins of Christians past and present, but ignore the facts of history. It ignores the work of Jesus Christ in history. So let me give you some facts. Granted, I wish I could say more. Some Southern pastors justified slavery in American South, and too many Americans follow their error. It, it, I once said in a class of, of white Southerners, and they were some of them were actually offended. I, I said in my sermon, because you're learning to preach, I said right out, I'm not shocked that black people were lynched because humans are evil and they do evil things. What shocked me is white Christians didn't have the guts to stand with them and say, you're going to lynch me too. And it shames me that the people on, who did the lynching would say they were Christians. And there's no doubt that sin was there. It was blatant. It was ugly. And it was at various levels. A lot of people just say, oh, I wasn't there. I didn't know. There is blatant racism in American Christian history. And that is to our shame. And I can't outline it all, but there's a lot. And our country, outside of that, has had groups of people, KKK and state laws, Jim Crow in the South, these things there are there. There are stains on our heritage. It was absolutely wicked to treat humans like animals. Absolutely wicked. So I'm given that. I, I'm not saying that there's no, we don't have an ugly history. What I'm saying is that, as Martin Luther King pointed out, the seeds of liberation were sown into our founding documents. You should not pull George Washington down. You don't know what you would have done if you were him but he definitely was not in favor of slavery. But he owned slaves. Read a book. And I, and I mean that insultingly. Learn the culture of the day. The seeds of liberation were sown in our founding documents. Our founding documents are not racist. Period. That's one of the reasons why we don't have slavery today. Racism has never been, as far as I know, the majority voice in evangelicalism, even when there was preachers in the South preaching it, and people not doing anything, you will not find an extensive bunch of writing within evangelical Christians or sermons preached by evangelical white people in America saying, keep the black man down. You just won't find it. Why? Because it is not there. It was not their major voice. It is not unabashed racism. It has been increasingly laid to rest also as time has gone on. And I mean, there were denominational failures. Whole Southern Baptist denomination went the whole, they just said, we picked the South over the North. Slavery question be damned. And I meant that not as a cuss, but as damnation. And they repented. <laughs> now I'm going to make a bold claim, and then I'm going to make some arguments for it, and if it doesn't convince you, that's fine. Look it up yourself. Here's my bold claim. The white Protestant evangelical church of the 18th and 19th century were almost single, singularly responsible for ending slavery as a legal institution all over the world for the first time in the 10,000 years of human civilization. I'm going to say it one more time. The white Protestant, now, now not just white, there were, uh, there were some blacks, free blacks, and 
abolitionist blacks, but the white Protestant evangelical church of the 18th and 19th century were almost singularly responsible for ending slavery as a legal institution, not just in America, but all over the world, for when the first time, slavery didn't begin with America, for the first time in 10,000 years of human civilization. Do I exaggerate? History tells a story. Now I'm just going to read text to you. I hope you can keep, not lose place. (laughs) say keep up. Of course you can keep up, but I don't know if I can read it clear enough. Here it goes. Slavery has been a regular practice in almost all societies, tribes, nations since the beginning of civilization. From thousands of years B.C., slavery was legal and even embraced in every place humans lived. You know of Egypt and the ancient civilizations mentioned in the Bible, but beyond that record, history tells us that slavery was legal and normal in the Persian Empire, in the Greek Empire, and if you don't know it, these are the biggest empires before the Roman, which is the biggest of all, the Greek Empire, the Roman Empire, the Mongolian Empire, and I could go on and on. It was also accepted, legal, and seen as normal among the Vikings who raided Europe, among the ancient Russians, among the tribes of what we now call the United Kingdom, or Great Britain and Ireland, and Scotland, and all those places, among the indigenous people of the Americas, American Indians would enslave other American Indians uh, quite frequently, Heck, if you're an Aztec or Mayan, getting enslaved might mean your heart cut out and you're thrown down a volcano. I think slavery's bad. That's even worse. The tribes of Africa, throughout the Ottoman, the tribes of Africa definitely dealt in slaves. Almost no white people went onto the continent of Africa to get slaves. They were sold from other African slaves, or African tribes. Throughout the Ottoman Empire, think great Islamic time. You don't know when that is? Read some books. It's out there. Um, uh, their their African slave market was incredible. They just kept buying African slaves and Africans kept selling Africans to them. Um, In all times, most nations of the world endorsed and saw no wrong in legal slavery. That's just, in other words, it was the way of mankind. Until when? Believe it or not, worldwide legal slavery ended for the most part, I know we have illegal slavery going on today, human trafficking, child stuff, it's disgusting. But legal slavery ended, and look it up, it's in history books, when mostly English-speaking, yes, mostly white, now I'm not saying whites are better, this is just the reality of history. They're not better, I'm just fighting this idea that's nothing but unabashed racism for 400 years, which is stupid. Mostly white Protestant evangelicals. It was mostly not the Catholics. Some, eventually they caught up. Definitely not Islam. (laughs) They're still at it today. And these people were from Great Britain and the New World chiefly. Some of the other European states, but mostly Great Britain and what we call the United States of America or before. Before that, the colonies, along with other European individuals, began to challenge the institution in the 1700s and the 1800s. That's 18th and 19th century. You go back one for you young people who don't know. If you say 19th century, it's the 1800s. And if you go, yeah, go backwards. So the 1700s and 1800s. Britain and America outlawed the slave trade in the early 1800s. Well, we still had slavery. We weren't allowed to slave, trade them. Why? Because there were forces fighting slavery. Christian forces on the other side of the pond especially. You know the story of William Wilberforce, but he's not alone. And the abolitionist movement down here, we, of course you had freed blacks working on it, but you had a lot of white people mo- motivated by what? Their Christianity. Their Christianity was pushing them to liberate the slaves. Throughout the 1800s especially, British colonialism. You say, all the colonialism is bad. I'm not saying anything good about British colonialism. There was a time, they said, when the British Empire, the sun never set on it because they they had controlled so many people around the world. And I'm not saying that's good, but one good thing that came out of it was British colonialism and other European countries began to pressure all the nations they influenced to stop legal slavery in places like India, the Middle East, South America. South America, by the way, had more African slaves than, than North America. Brazil was the... You may not know this, Brazil had at least three times or, or more black African slaves come in from Africa than the United States had. By 1869, slavery was over in America, but in Brazil, slavery would not be outlawed until two decades later. But fortunately, it was outlawed. There were winds of change. 
Um, after 600,000 Americans died, giving the atoning blood, you want your reparation? 600,000 Americans died. Cities burned. The cost of our evil sin, and it was our evil sin. There's your atonement. But it didn't, that blood shed on American soil helped push the ball in the rest of the world, including Brazil, which didn't have to have a civil war. Um, they were pushed by Europeans who uh, colonized them. The world did not get rid of slavery because of secular impulses or philosophy. Rather, it was the Protestant Christians of America and Britain whose voices were the loudest and efforts unrelenting. And after 200 years of trying, they won the day. This is a testimony to the power of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And it's being denied by people who blithely and foolishly, stupidly ignorant of history say, 400 years of unabashed racism. Read a book. So if you pull that card out, I'm not saying this solves everything, but if that's a lie, what else is? Address a couple more things quickly. Apologizing for the sins of white people in the past is foolish. You don't do that. I mourn for the sins of Americans in the past, but I will not apologize for sins I didn't commit. Why? One, your ancestors may or may not have owned slaves. Mine most certainly did not. Uh, heck, some of my ancestors probably were slaves. Probably all of us, everyone in the world were slaves once, but I know having Mexican background, <laughs> I mean, Mexicans are an exploited people by nature. There's no such thing as Mexicans. They are, uh, they're like Mayans who've been taken over by Spaniards. That's how you make a Mexican. They didn't even exist in the 1400s. No doubt I had slavery in my past. Then you have Italians. I had some mobsters in my past. Sorry, I shouldn't say that. Maybe a spaghetti cooker. No, that's, that's too much stereotyping. Too much stereotyping. Too much. My dad was German. And the Italians and the Germans didn't even come to the Western Hemisphere until the early 1900s and mid-1900s. So that, I didn't have any slave owners in my past. My grandmother comes from something English in Altoona. Never had any slaves. Heck, <laughs> the person you apologize to may or may not be descended from slaves. Black Africans in America at times, free blacks, and blacks in the Caribbean were also slave owners. Much like our Vice President candidate Kamala Harris was, comes, descends directly from slave owners in, the, in Jamaica. Cuba and Puerto Rico had my, I mean, anyway. Most importantly, and this is from the word of God, you are not responsible for the sins of other people. Ezekiel 18 says this on the subject. You say, why should the son not bear the punishment for the father's sin? Why shouldn't you pay for what they did? When the son has practiced justice and righteousness and observed all my statues, says God, he will live. The person who sins will die. The son will not bear the punishment of his father's iniquity, nor will the father bear the punishment for his son's iniquity. The righteousness of the righteous will be upon himself, and the wickedness of the wicked will be upon himself. If I had a relative who owned a slave, then it's on him. If I had a relative who led 100 people to Christ, that's on him too. And since I go all the way back to Adam and Eve, I got relatives who did it all, and so do you. Next, if you know Christ and you believe that all people are equal before the Lord and period, that the, the different skin and different... Some, I hear racism sometimes from people who say, well, look at Africa, all those nations aren't doing well. Must be a black thing. That's racism. And it's evil. I heard from blacks too, though, say, say white man is a scourge on the earth, a blue-eyed devil. That's racism. If you have any of that in you, it's a sin. But if you don't have any of that in you, and you know that you would treat everyone the same, you're not a racist, even by accident. If you are racist, I want you to know there's repentance. Repent. People have repented of this. You can repent of any sin. Because when the Holy Spirit comes in you, he'll take that away. I once talked to a black woman in a church, and she, sat, she was old, and she, sat, she said to me, she said, this is... So funny, because she was being just straight with me. She said, when I was young, I hated white people. She said, I even hated their babies. That's how she talked. <laughs> now, that's hate. But she went on to say, Christ came into her, 
and that went away. And I've heard stories of guys in the KKK who become saved and they realize they're wrong. So if you have that, repent. The Lord will save you. Another thing, there's a lot of talk about white privilege. And then people argue, well, it's good to be white, well, it's good to be black, it's good to be this. If you're trying to get into Yale, it's good to be black. If you're, if you're trying to get a loan, it's good to be white and all this stuff. And then they fight over statistics. Listen, you're Christians. There's no time to explore all the reasoning behind that. I think it's stupid to even think like this. But if you are accused of having privileged, you're accused of white privilege, or if you're accused of being underprivileged, you're a little brown there, buddy. You're being, you're a victim. Someone wants you to get mad or apologize. Listen, don't do either one. All of our response is the same. It doesn't matter if I have privilege. It doesn't matter if I'm underprivileged because I've chosen to be a servant of all men as my Savior has done. I exist to serve. Jesus had privilege and he served all. He did not apologize for his advantages being the Son of God and he didn't compare his victimhood to other people who were less victimized. Those Roman privilege. Instead, he served. That's our pattern. As Jesus said, whoever wishes to be first among you shall be slave of all. Mark 10. And he also said, you too, when you do all things which you are commanded, say, we are unworthy slaves. Christian, look at yourself like that, and you won't have to worry about it. Someone says you have privilege. Fine, but I'm your slave, so let's get going. Someone says, well, you're, this guy has privilege and you don't. I don't care because I'm an unworthy servant of God. We've only done that, which we should have. And Paul said, though I am free of all men, I have made myself a slave of all men. The current woke movement is less about justice and more about lust for power. The result is it increases hatred in the world and division when it comes into the church. We are all one human race. Christians are all family, all servants. Our great failure in this time falls equally on all believers, not just whites. To say otherwise is remaining patriarchal. If the whites will just fix it. No, no. If I am a black Christian, I should act the same as I have in my life as a white Christian. Culturally, going over and meeting the Chinese guy, the Indian guy, and even the white guy. And serving and loving them as a brother. But we have failed to look out intentionally. And, and, and we should be bothered by the fact that there are crumbling, our, our cities are crumbling hives at times. We shouldn't just shake our head and go, I can't believe this is happening in Chicago. We should feel pain and say, how can I help fix Chicago? Not on our Facebook, not on our Instagram. Let your deeds be seen by God. I hesitated to tell you mine. But I know one of my weaknesses is if I don't tell you what I'm thinking, you'll make it up yourself. And I wanted you to know how I feel. So how should we approach skin color? I want to end by reading you a familiar text for most Christians. Listen carefully, even though you know it. Maybe a new detail will jump out. It's from Luke 10. Jesus replied and said, A man was going down to Jerusalem, to Jericho, and he fell among robbers. They stripped him and beat him and went away, leaving him half dead. And by chance, a priest was going down that road. And when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. Likewise, a Levite also. And when he came to that place and saw him, he passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, by the way, this is a Jewish story. The Samaritan's a bad guy. Samaritan is literally a half-breed. They were invaded by Gentiles um, who the Assyrians tried to kill their culture by uh, stealing their women and, you know, mixing them up with other people, right? And so they were half-breeds, and they were also cult members. In other words, they believed a portion of the Jewish text, but not all of it. They worshipped in the wrong place, so they had false beliefs, and they were ethnically half-breeds, and they were hated by the Jews. So here comes a Samaritan. But a Samaritan, who was on a journey, came upon him, and when he saw him, he felt compassion. He felt compassion on a Jew. And he came to him, and he bandaged up his wounds, pouring oil and wine on them, and he put him on his own beast and brought him to an inn and took care of him. On the next day, he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper. That's a lot of money, by the way, two denarii for a working man. He said, take care of him. Whatever more you spend, when I return, I'll repay. Obviously, he didn't, couldn't find the guy's family, so he says, I'll cover him until we get this figured out. Then Jesus said, which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor? The priest, the other guy, I can't remember what he said, tax collector or whatever it was, um, 
or the Samaritan? What was it? Levite, Levite thank you. Who's another kind of priest? Levite priest. Which of these three proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell into the robber's hands? And he said, the one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said, and you go and do the same. What's the application that the Savior give us? I think you might think it's go and do the same, but that's not complete. Go and do the same as the Samaritan is not complete unless you can define what did the Samaritan do. The question was, which of these three proved to be a neighbor. What the Samaritan did was proved to be a neighbor. Therefore, what you're supposed to do is prove to be a neighbor. To who? Who? Anyone. Anyone. The powerful part of the story is the Samaritan was the oppressed one in society. If he lived today, he would, somebody, some activist would have said, don't help that guy. Go through his clothes and get his loose change. He doesn't have any. He's been robbed. He's the oppressor. He's the unwoke person with all the privilege. But this guy knew that those people hated him. But what the Samaritan saw was humanity. It's, it's not a black guy simply who got killed or a white guy. It's a human with a human mama who's crying. It's a human. And that's what he saw, a human. It's powerful. The Jews had real racism, by the way. They really thought they were better than everybody, literally, especially Samaritans. The Samaritan did not ignore the Jew, didn't rob him, didn't demand reparations. He served him. Jesus did the same. He looked down on us and had compassion on a people made in his image, who were going to hell. And he didn't condemn us, didn't say he was better than us, even though he was, he served us. And he died on a cross and took our sins. Let me ask you a question. How many friends do you have that are not like you? And don't use the excuse that none are in my neighborhood. Because that just means you won't leave your neighborhood to find them on purpose. How many people do you serve that are not of your immediate culture or subculture? And that often has to do with ethnicity, national, what nation they come from, skin color, but it can also mean poor and rich. <laughs> you have more money? Do you ever hang out with those? You ever been down to the public housing? Or, you're in the, or the other direction? Or how about young or old? If you're older, do you have anyone you'd call a friend who's not a relative, who has tats everywhere, that just don't look good anyhow. The hair ain't right. You know they're not sleeping with the right people. That's not your culture. Do you have friends like that? And if that's you, young, if you're young, do you care what those old people think at all? Do you have any friends who aren't your family who are old? And now old is relative. You probably think, I'm old. Let me pass you on to the older folks. If you're black... Do you have any white? I don't mean people you know are white. I mean, you've been to their house. They've been to yours. If you're white, I don't want to know you got a black dude at work you get along with. Have you ever been to his house? When you're going to go do something, do you call him up? You say, no, that's not natural. It's not that I don't love him. It's just not natural. I know it's not natural. That's intentionality. You put yourself in an uncomfortable place until it's no longer uncomfortable. Why should I do that? Because right now, the testimony of the church, I don't think it's racism and hate, but it is division and it's not unity. We've got to cross cultural barriers with our own brothers and sisters. You've got to do it on purpose. They're not going to come to you. And I don't care what color you are hearing me. The church is divided. I don't think the major problem is racism. I think it's indifference. What might be worse. You just don't care enough about each other. I mean, blacks caring about the whites, whites caring about the blacks, Chinese caring about everybody. I don't know how to do that. I, I can't, you can't keep it equal when you start that. You know what I mean. I'm actually, I've never said this before. And this makes me tremble a little bit, but I'm going to say it. I urge you in this matter to follow my example as I follow Jesus.
purposely, intentionally love and serve and befriend people outside of your own culture. You see, we're like the blank tiles, Christian. If you're going to prove to be a neighbor, he's a, he's a neighbor. You could take that Samaritan, you can drop him anywhere. He's going to be a neighbor. He's going to have compassion. He fits everywhere. You're like the blank tile on the Scrabble board. You fit nicely with every word, and you always add value. No one ever goes, oh, I got a blank. I know some of you don't spell, so I, I don't know. I mean, you don't play Scrabble or whatever. You shoot things or move your thumbs. But there used to be a game we played that... You're supposed to be the blank. You're supposed to be the blank. You could pick you up, take you down to Pittsburgh to home, uh, Homewood. Um, I get all my names mixed up. I'm getting old. And that guy, that guy, there's a black preacher who's just great on Word FM. What's it? Is anchored in the Word? Why don't you go to his church? Do it a few times in a row. Try to make one friend. I'll stand out. Oh, heck, you will. You'd probably be underdressed. Do it anyway. Why? Because you're a Christian, they're a Christian. We got to stop doing this. Don't got to wait for him to send his people to us. Though he would be nice too. Do it. Thank you for listening to this sermon from Harvest Community Church. We invite you to join us at any one of our four campuses located in Catanning, Petrolia Valley, Indiana, and Freeport. For more information, check us out on the web at harvestpa.org.